It's just a pure joy for me to be with you, uh, particularly to be with a church that has become a partner to us in the fullest sense of the word uh, in our ministry in Malawi. And I know I speak for all our team at Kappa just in thanking you for your, your ministry to us and, and not being a church that just has our, our name on a missionary board back in the hallway somewhere, but a church that is really cares for us and, and prays for us and wants to get to know us and become true partners and true family together. And we thank you for that. And uh, we thank Todd for his leadership in that. It's such a, a blessing uh, to be here. And I just wanted to begin by just letting you get to know me a little bit. Uh, I know you've heard a lot about the, the ministry in, in Malawi, but... Uh, yeah, as Todd said, we were in seminary together a quarter of a century ago, and I left in 2003 to go to South Africa uh, to plant a church there in a small city called Sasselberg. Uh, was still single, and uh, we planted the church there and um, met my wife there. Uh, my problem in getting married was I was looking on the wrong continent. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, got to, I got to South Africa, spent four months there in 2002 filling in for a master's graduate, Joel James, in a ch- his church in Pretoria, South Africa. And when he came back and found out I loved it there, he asked if I'd pray about planting a church in Sasselberg, which is about two hours south of there. Uh, he actually had some folks commuting that two hours to his church on Sunday because they were hungry for the word. It was getting a bit much for some of them, so he asked if I'd pray about planting the church there, and everything came together in the Lord's providence, and we were back six months later. My wife was a member of his church, so we met actually when I came back into the church. Uh, My wife's uh, first husband had uh, passed away with cancer about uh, six months prior to that, so we just kind of knew each other casually for a couple years, and then in 2005, uh, we have a shepherd's conference in South Africa every year as well, where a number of guys from the Master Seminary and Grace Church comes down uh, to preach for us. And Santi and I ended up uh, working the tape table together. And uh, she was on her way to be a medical missionary. She's a doctor, and she was on her way to be a medical missionary in the Sudan at the time. And uh, Joel told me I needed to redirect her, so I gladly, <laughs> gladly took him up on that offer and uh, got her phone number, and six months later we were married. And uh, so it's been a, a great blessing to, uh, to be blessed with a wonderful, godly wife. And back in uh, a few years ago, in 2011, we had made the, the decision to uh, adopt uh, in March of that year. And two months later, a police officer came into Son- where the, the doctor's office that Santi was working in. And Santi just casually asked him, uh, do you have any connection with the orphans or abandoned babies or anything? And he said, well... Yes, as a matter of fact, one of my colleagues uh, recently adopted two abandoned babies. Uh, I'll give you his number. And so she called this officer, and the officer said, well, I'll give you uh, the name of the social worker I worked with in Sasselberg. He said, be be patient. It's going to be a very long process. And Santi called up the social worker, and she said, uh, well, uh, or she called the office, and the lady said, well, it might be your lucky day, lady. We just got one in. Um, that was on a Monday. Uh, our oldest son, James, had um, been abandoned at the taxi rank the previous uh, Friday. A lady had brought him into the police station and said, uh, another lady had handed him to her and said, can you watch him while I go to the toilet? And she never came back. And uh, so we, we went in that night to get the, the paperwork, and we saw a lady holding James back behind the counter, and my wife fell in love with him immediately, uh, as ladies do. And we went in the next morning uh, thinking we were just going to turn in our application and have our initial interview. And the, the lady was quite cool toward us at first because uh, there's still uh, quite a bit of racial tension in South Africa, and, and most white couples are only interested in having a white baby, and so she was really cool toward us at first. And then she said, well, what kind of baby do you want? Uh, and we said, well, just as long, young as possible, that's all. And she said, you wouldn't mind having a black baby? And we said, no, that'd be great. And she picked up the phone and said, uh, hold the boy, I've got parents for him. And, uh, and then she said, well, we'll have to screen your application, we'll have to get his medicals done, we'll get back with you maybe by the end of the week. And we go down to the car and Santi looked at me and said, we could have a baby by the end of the week. And I said, we better pray. <laughs> and, uh, and we prayed and uh, God answered quick because Santi's phone rang. And the lady upstairs said, but you're a doctor, you can do his medicals, can't you? And he said, well, sure, we'll come back up and get him. And, uh, and we went home with him. And uh, he basically had the outfit he had on, a bottle, a bottle holder, and a blanket. That's all he had. And um, the church just jumped in. By the, by the evening, we had everything we needed. 
And uh, the supervisor even told us, called us in when we were there and said, don't go out and tell people it happens like this because it doesn't. <laughs> it was just God's providential timing because he wanted James to be the joy that he is to us as a family. But it did happen again two more times. Two years ago, we were, had gone away for our anniversary for a few days. We were camping up in the bush, and we had left James with my wife's mom for those days. And a social worker that we had interviewed with before we even got James called and said, I hear you, you two might be interested in another child. And we said, yeah, we were starting to think about that. And she said, well, there might be one in the pipeline. I'll get back with you. An hour later, she called back and said, uh, can you be back here tomorrow morning? We got up the next morning, drove back. Uh, there was a little premature baby. He was three pounds. You could fit him in a salad bowl. We named him David, uh, the, the little one. We got him, uh, spent the night, went to court the next day, got it all official that he was in our care. Then and took this little guy back to camp in the bush for the next night, <laughs> and then went and introduced him to his brother. <laughs> so that was uh, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And then, uh, three months later, on my wife's birthday in February, this same social worker calls up and says, I, I know you just got David, but would you like a two-day-old baby girl to go with the boy? And you've got an hour to decide. <laughs> and... Um, we knew at that point we were going to Malawi, and we, we wanted a girl, and we, we didn't know uh, what the adoption situation would be like in Malawi, so we prayed and told the waitress to bring our food in a go box, <laughs> and uh, we went and uh, met with a social worker, and, and we got Ami the same day, <laughs> so we broke our record. We got her the same day, and so that's how we got, we're blessed with our, our children, and we're just so, so thankful for them, and I pastored in... Sasselberg in South Africa for 12 years, and about two years ago, we, um, we were sensing that it was a time to, to move on from that ministry, that it might not be the best fit for me, and uh, God had done a lot of wonderful things, but uh, about that time, Brian Biedebach called me from Malawi and said, would you pray about coming up and, and teaching for us at Kappa? So I went up for a look-see and was just really quickly excited about the ministry there, taught a class, and the men were just so hungry and, and, uh, and wanting to be taught the Word of God. Santi, being someone who had wanted to be a missionary further up into Africa uh, already as she was on her way to the Sudan, she was quickly on board with it, and we accepted the call to come up to Malawi, and I came back and raised support and got the, the go-ahead from GMI to, to transition. We thought everything was go uh, last uh, February. I flew up in, in January and started teaching. I flew up for, for a module and started uh, teaching a class. And, and then we were going to move up in February. We had all of our, our furniture, uh, our house cleaned out. Our furniture was in storage in uh, uh, Johannesburg waiting to be shipped when we got to Malawi. And we started our journey up there and got to the border. Spent the whole day, first of all, exporting our vehicles through out of South Africa. It was over 100 degrees, and we're standing in these long lines to, to get all our paperwork done. And finally, it took all day, and we were, we were driving out the last gate at 6 o'clock in the evening. And one of the officials stopped us and said, can I see your paperwork? And uh, he said, you're immigrating to Malawi? <laughs> yes. He said, well, you can't drive through Zimbabwe if you're immigrating to another country. And they wanted us to, to pay to put our vehicles on a flatbed and then us catch a bus and drive to the border at Zambia because you had to go through two countries to get to Malawi. And uh, somehow we'd had to find our vehicles at the border. And so we finally convinced them to let us go back to South Africa. And the Lord worked it out. We were able to add our vehicles to the furniture shipment, and then we just flew up in March. Uh, so, so after a, a bit of an ordeal, we got there. And it's been a wonderful transition for us. My wife and our son James really love it there, and the two little ones don't know the difference yet. Uh, so, um, but... It's been a blessing to be a part of the ministry there. It's a wonderful uh, team of guys. I mean, you've, you've met the other guys, and uh, it's such a joy to work in, in a part of the team. And, and I think the, the thing that really gripped us the most about going uh, to minister at Kappa was just the, the potential impact of training men who, for the most part, are already pastoring churches and already in ministry, but have never been trained to exposit the word accurately. I've never been taught how to interpret the word accurately. And uh, so we've got guys with, uh, you know, they're, 
they're changing in their theology, and they're changing in the way that they interpret Scripture, and they're, lear- they're learning to actually preach the Word instead of just preach around and about the Word, which is the norm there. A lot of, you know, read a text, tell a bunch of stories, and sing some songs and dismiss, but it's been wonderful in, in just the year I've been there to see God working in the lives of the men and the change that He's bringing about uh, in their lives. We're very thankful uh, to be there. Uh, Malawi is different from South Africa in that it, it's real Africa. Uh, it's not first world mixed to third world like South Africa, but it's, it's third world, and, uh, but we were already prepared for that. Uh, I think our transition already being in Africa was, was easier than the other guys coming from here. We already understood power outages and that kind of thing, uh, but we, we love it there, uh, thankful to be there, and, and greatly appreciate your partnership with us and, and your prayers for us. That's enough about me. Uh, What I really wanted to do this morning was uh, look into the Word of God together with you this morning. Turn with me in the text that's in your bulletin, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Scripture teaches us that when God saves a person, He implants in the heart of that person a desire to please Him and live a life that brings Him glory. Uh, that's just part of the salvation package. Uh, anyone who has been saved has that desire, even though it might get crowded out at times with our own fleshly desires, but that's part of becoming a Christian. But I think every Christian, as they seek to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, eventually comes to struggle with a particular dilemma. And that dilemma is, what is God's role in my sanctification and spiritual growth, and, and what is my role? In other words, what, is, what has God done and what has God, prom- has God promised to do to enable me to live the life that He's called me to? And what am I responsible for? And historically, the church has tended to swing back and forth to two extremes on that issue. Historically, there's been some groups within the Christian church, and even today, that view the Christian life in terms of of simply God's role. Uh, their view of the Christian life is that we simply let God, let Christ live his life through us. Uh, they focus on verses like Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Uh, and their view of the Christian life is that we're, we're kind of a a passive vehicle through which Christ lives his life, and, and we're kind of inactive in the process. Um, you'll hear them use phrases like, uh, let go and let God live his life through you, or it's, uh, it's God's role to work, it's, it's your role to trust. And uh, they might view effort and uh, activity and discipline in the Christian life uh, as a work of the flesh, uh, something you you should not be doing but simply trust Christ to live his life through you. On the other hand, there are other groups that would perhaps in response, uh, reaction to that uh, view, would view the Christian life uh, in very active terms and focus on our role in living the Christian life. Uh, and, And this group would be those that would would uh, view the Christian life as kind of rolling up your sleeves and getting to work and being as active as you can. And they would focus on verses like Hebrews 12, verse 14, which says that we are to pursue sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. And uh, our Lord's words that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. And all those commands in Scripture that, that call upon us to an all-out pursuit of holiness. Now, what makes it difficult for us as Christians sometimes to work through that dilemma is that there are, there are large elements of truth in both views. Scripture does teach us that we are to allow Christ to live his life through us and that uh, uh, our sanctification is all by the grace of God. On the other hand, Scripture also just as clearly teaches us that we are required by God to to pursue holiness and pursue sanctification with everything that's in us. And how do you get the balance in that? Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I think, is one of the, one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture uh, to help us with that issue because it really brings those two aspects of sanctification 
the Lord's role and our role together. So let's read 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11 together. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who, has co- who called you by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In this passage this morning, we will examine three aspects of sanctification that will enable you to live the life that God has called you to. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at the graces granted. And that's God's role in our sanctification, what He has done to enable us to live the life that He has called us to. And then secondly, in verses 5 through 7, we're going to look at the responsibilities required. What does God require of us in order to uh, pursue sanctification and become the people He wants us to be? And then finally, in verses 8 through 11, we're going to look at the blessings bestowed. What will be the wonderful results in our life if we take what God has done to enable us to live the life that He has called us to and live that out the way He requires. And these blessings are are wonderful indeed. Let's begin with the graces granted. And the first grace that God has granted to us to enable us to live the life that uh, brings Him glory is salvation itself and even the faith to receive that salvation. In verse uh, 2, Peter says... Uh, that he's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word received in that verse is a word that originally meant to obtain by lot. And it spoke of something that was was granted without any kind of of merit or, or work or value. It speaks of a free gift. And Scripture certainly teaches us throughout that salvation is a free gift of the grace of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, uh, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So salvation is a a free gift that comes to us uh, through faith in Christ. But this verse uh, teaches us even more than that. It teaches us that even the faith to receive the free gift of salvation... That itself is part of the gift. If God had said, I'll give you the free gift of salvation if you can just muster up enough faith to receive it, none of us would have ever received it because we were committed unbelievers. And we, we, were, we were rebels to God and had no desire to believe or follow Him in our natural state. So God not only grants the free gift of salvation, but even the, 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 the faith to receive it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. The salvation and the faith are gifts of God. In Philippians 1 and verse 29, Paul says that it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for his sake. And in that verse, he says there's two gifts that God has granted us. The first is to believe upon him. That's, that's a gift that he grants to, the, to his elect, to those that he calls to himself. Uh, 
The other gift is one we might not want to suffer for his namesake, but uh, uh, that's part of the package as well. So Paul, uh, Peter says here, the first thing that God has done to enable us to live the life that he's called us to is to, to save us. And uh, that salvation, he says in verse 2, comes to us by or through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Salvation comes to us because Christ lived the righteous life that none of us lived. And then he died on the cross to make a full atonement for the sins of those who had put their faith in him. So salvation is a free gift based upon what Christ has done for us. And if you're here this morning without Christ, my, my plea to you would be to, to turn to Christ and to cry out to him uh, for the faith and the grace to receive the free gift of salvation. And that's the only way you'll ever be able to live the Christian life. No one can live the Christian life unless they've first been saved. Um, I've known people who have tried to live the Christian life without coming to know Christ. And eventually it's not long before they give up in despair. Because you can't live the Christian life without Christ. So the first thing that God has done for us to enable us to live the life that he's called us to is to give us that life to begin with in salvation. But Peter goes on to give us a second wonderful gift that God has granted to enable us to live a life that pleases him. And that's in verse 3. And it's, he's given us everything we need to live the Christian life. Uh, he's speaking in very broad terms here. And in verse 3 he says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. The word granted here is a, a stronger word than the normal word in the, the scriptures that means to give. Uh, this is a word that, mean, that spoke of, of a, a, a king granting something to one of his subjects. It's a royal grant, you could say. Uh, it was used to speak of, uh, uh, of Pilate granting permission for Joseph of Arimathea to take down the body of Jesus and, uh, for burial. And, uh, and here it says that our God has granted to us... Um, through his divine power, and it's only through his divine power that we could be given this, a wonderful gift. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's an astounding promise. and It means that everything that you need to live the life that God has called you to, he's already granted that to you in Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said in, in, in Colossians 2 and verse 10, uh, you have been made complete in him. There, there's nothing that you need uh, to live the Christian life other than what God has already uh, granted uh, to you. Uh, he says here it's everything pertaining to life, and that word, that's the word that speaks of the eternal life that we've received at salvation, and everything that we need for godliness, uh, to live a life that brings glory and honor to Him, to, to become godly, to become the person that you want to be as a Christian. Uh, God has already given you everything you need uh, for that. And John MacArthur has often used the illustration of a baby. You know, a baby comes into the, a baby comes into the world with all the equipment. Uh, they've got fingers and toes and arms and legs and a head. Uh, they just need to grow. Uh, they just need to mature. But they've they've got everything from the beginning. And the same thing is true in our spiritual birth. At our at the time you were born again, God gave you everything you need. You just have to to grow in it and put it into practice. Reminds me of a story I heard years ago about a, a man who, in the days before air travel, uh, was uh, taking a trip across the Atlantic in an ocean liner. Um, I forget whether he was an American going to England or the other way around, but uh, he didn't have a lot of money. And so he, he had just barely uh, enough to buy the, the ticket and have a little bit left over. And so he was thinking, I don't have, uh, I don't have money to buy food on the ship. So uh, he had enough to buy a big block of cheese. And a few loaves of bread. And he thought, well, that's, that's what I'll eat on the way over. And he, he got on the ship and uh, he would walk by the, the, the dining room on that ship. And he would smell all those smells coming out of there. And he would go back to his cabin and eat his bread and his cheese. And at first it didn't matter to him. He was just thankful to be going and, and happy that he could, he could go. But, but uh, after, after a few days, his bread began to get stale and his cheese began to get moldy and, and it wasn't very appetizing anymore. And he, he would walk by that dining room and the, the smells would get louder and louder. And finally, uh, near the end of the trip, he, he, the cheese and the bread are just unedible now. 
and he's, uh, uh, he's about to die every time he walks by the, the dining room. And he goes up to the captain and he says, Sir, uh, can I make, a, can I make a, a deal with you? Uh, uh, if I could just have a, a, a nice meal out of the, out of the dining room, uh, I'll work for it. I'll, I'll wash dishes. I'll swab the deck. I'll do whatever I need to do. But can I, can I just have a, a good meal? And the captain looks at him puzzled and says, Are you a stowaway? And he said, Oh, no, sir. I'm a paying passenger. Here's my ticket. And the captain said, Well, well sir, all the meals are included in the price of the ticket. So here's this poor guy. He's had this whole voyage where he could have been feasting on all this wonderful food that was, that was there waiting for him, and yet he was back in his cabin starving on molded cheese and stale bread. And spiritually, that's the way a lot of Christians sadly live their lives. God has granted us everything we need in Christ to live the life that God has called us to, but because we're either ignorant of that or we don't apply that we we live our lives as spiritual beggars uh, barely scraping by in our christian life when when we could be living life uh, fully to the glory of god now one more thing that god has given us though to enable us to live the christian life is not only salvation itself and the the, the faith to receive it and everything that pertains to life and godliness and you you think well what what, what could he do beyond that well peter focuses in verse four on just one aspect of those all things in particular, and that is uh, he's granted us a transformed nature. He says in verse 4, For by, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world uh, by lust. He mentions there the precious and magnificent promises of God. And um, that's speaking about the promises of salvation we find in Scripture. And when we think of God granting us everything that pertains to life and godliness, um, those things are some, could be summed up in two things. The first is He's given us His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who comes to live in our hearts when we receive Christ. And it's through the Holy Spirit and Him alone and His strength that we can live the life that God has called us to. And then secondly, God has given us His Word, which gives us all the information we need in order to live the life that God has called us to. And what that means is that none of us have to seek another, a new experience or some new revelation or, or follow the latest religious fad, but we have what we need to live uh, the Christian life. Because of, it says at the end of verse 3, the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. The word for knowledge there refers to, it's a compound word in the Greek, and uh, epigonosko, uh, the word gnosko is the word for knowledge. Epi intensifies that, and it speaks of a a knowledge that's not just head knowledge, but is an experiential knowledge. It's a word of relationship. So this, this is all true for those who have a true knowledge, a true relationship with Christ. And then down in verse 4, he says that through these magnificent promises of salvation, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And this speaks of the transformed nature that we've been given as children of God. Peter says here, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we become deity, or as some uh, in the, the health and wealth movement today would say that we become little gods. What this means simply is that we, we are granted the, the life of Christ in us. That, uh, as uh, one of the older theologians uh, would say, we have the life of God in the soul of, of a man. Uh, we have become, if you're a Christian this morning, you have become a child of God. And, and Christ has come to live within you. And he has transformed your heart so that you're no longer the person you used to be. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Uh, you're a different person if you're a Christian. Um, a Christian is not someone who just is trying to live a different kind of life. 
A Christian is someone who has been transformed on the inside through salvation, and now they live a different life simply because they're a new person. And, uh, um, and Peter says here, we have become a partaker uh, of the divine nature, or that you may become a partaker of the divine nature. And the phrase here, you may become, is, is very interesting in the original because it has, an, it has an aspect of finality to it because it's an aorist verb, but it also has, by definition, the idea of something you are becoming. And the idea here is that if you're a Christian, your nature has been transformed, truly, but you can still grow in that. You can still develop that and become more and more like Christ. So it's something that has happened to you if you're a Christian, but something that needs to happen even more and more. And at the end of verse 4, Peter gives us the flip side of that. Uh, he says, You've been made a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word for corruption here is a word that means to decompose or deteriorate. It's a, it's a word that would speak of a, a body that is decomposing. Uh, in the spiritual sense here, it refers to the fact that before we're saved... Uh, Spiritually, we are getting worse and worse. As a person lives longer without Christ, they become more and more corrupt. Even if they're a moral person, even if they're a person that you would think of as a, a quote-unquote good person, um, they're becoming more and more hardened and more and more corrupt, uh, more, and more, more and more resistant to God unless God works in their heart. And In other words, they're spiraling down in their spiritual life. Because they had no spiritual life. But then, when God saves them, God reverses that spiral and begins to, He transforms our nature and He gives us the grace to begin becoming more and more like He wants us to be. That, that spiral reverses. It doesn't mean we become sinless. And it doesn't mean when he says we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust that we, we're no longer tempted to sin or that we no longer do sin. But as the old Puritans used to say, it means that God has broken the dominion of sin over us so that we no longer have to sin. And that because we've been truly made new, uh, we will live a different kind of life. And uh, Peter says here in this verse that that corruption that we've escaped is in the world by lust. Uh, lust here refers to sinful desires and sinful cravings, and, and we all have those things. But God has freed us from them such that we no longer have to be bound by them if you're a true believer. So God has granted us some wonderful things to enable us to live the life that He's called us to. He's given us salvation and even the faith to receive it. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's transformed our nature and freed us from the bondage of sin. And you might think at this point, well, if God's done all that, what could be left for me to do? Uh, aren't, those, aren't those groups that teach that salvation is just a, a, a passive thing, uh, aren't they right? Well, notice how Peter addresses that issue in the very next verse. In verse 5, he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence and, and so forth. Peter doesn't at all say that since God has done all this for you, you can just sit back and, 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 and let God zap you with holiness. Peter says, for the very reason that God has given you everything you need in Christ to live the Christian life, let that motivate you to all diligence, to an all-out pursuit of holiness. And the, the word for diligence here is a word that, that has a twofold meaning. It, it speaks of an all-out effort, um, uh, an, an effort that, that is not half-hearted, but is whole-hearted, and that is not selective, uh, that, that it doesn't pick and choose what areas of the Christian life uh, you want to grow in, but that you want to grow in every area of the Christian life. And then it also has the idea of urgency, that you are to, to make haste, to do this, to put these things into practice. Imagine with me for a, a moment that you have inherited a farm, lots of farming country uh, uh, around you here, 
And, uh, but imagine you've, you've inherited this farm, and, and on this farm, there's everything you need to grow a wonderful crop. Uh, you have acres and acres of rich soil uh, for whatever crop you, you want to grow. Uh, you have all the, the farm equipment and the machinery and the implements you need to plow and to plant and to cultivate and to, to harvest the crop. Uh, you have plenty of water and a great irrigation system on your farm. Uh, you have all the buildings you need to store your equipment and to store your crops when they come in. Uh, you have all the seed and the fertilizer you would need to plant and to, to, to protect your crop. And so because of that, you just go out on the front porch of the farm and sit down in the rocking chair and put your hands back and say, Ah, oh, going to have a great crop this year. And you never plant and you never plow, and you never cultivate, what kind of great crop are you going to have when harvest time comes? You're not going to have any crop. The same thing is true in the Christian life. Just because God has granted us everything we need to live the Christian life, if we don't draw out of those resources and put them into practice diligently, we're not going to see much, if any, growth. Because we are resp responsible to do our part by the grace of God. And that leads us to the responsibilities required. And the responsibilities of the Christian life that Peter speaks of here are seven character qualities, that seven areas of our life that God wants us to grow in as believers, taking from the resources that he's given us and by faith putting them into practice. He begins in verse 6 by saying, Now for this very reason, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence. He doesn't say supply the faith. We, he's assuming that as believers we've already have faith because we believed in Christ. But he says here, in your faith supply moral excellence. Now, depending on what version you have, you may have a lot of different translations here because this word that's translated in the NASB here, moral excellence, uh, has a wide range of meanings uh, in the original. Uh, it can be translated moral courage, uh, moral excellence, virtue, goodness, energy. Um, the basic thought behind it is a zeal for holiness, a zeal to please God in every area of your life. And uh, Peter says that's the first thing you need to, to, to add to your faith is, is this desire to please God in every area of your life. Now, I've already said that that comes with the package of salvation in embryo. But what God wants us to do is to pray for grace that we might grow in that desire so that it becomes a passion, that we have a passion to please God in every area of our life that it's not half-hearted, it's whole-hearted, that it's not selective where you, you, you're, you're, you're desirous to grow in this area of your Christian life, but this area you're just kind of happy to leave alone. No, God wants us to have a whole-hearted, passionate zeal to please Him in every area of our lives. And then to that, something that comes next is, He says, in your moral excellence, uh, supply knowledge. Now, as we go through these character qualities, um, you're going to see that there's a natural progression, that where you grow in one of these areas, it naturally leads to the next. Don't think of that as some kind of uh, spiritual video game where you have to master one level before you can move on to the next, uh, because we're all going to be growing in each of these areas all the time. But, but there is a natural progression here where growing in one area helps us with the next. And I believe the reason that Peter puts knowledge here after this, this uh, desire for moral excellence is that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. In Romans 10 and verse 2, Paul spoke of the, the Jews who had a, a zeal for God but not according to knowledge because they didn't even know who Christ was. Now, they, of course, were unbelievers, but that can be true of us as Christians as well. We can, we can have a zeal to do what's right and a zeal to please God, but if that zeal is not informed by Scripture, uh, we're going to go off track. In fact, that's what produces legalism, zeal without knowledge. So we add a lot of man-made rules to the Christian life instead of uh, what God has, uh, has called us to be and to do. And so the word for knowledge here is different from the word for knowledge up in verse... Uh, um, 
verse 2, which, or verse uh, 3, that word was epigonosko, which spoke of an experiential knowledge. Here it's just gnosko, which basically just means knowledge, knowing the facts, knowing what God requires of us and what he has granted to us to enable us to live the life that he's called us to. And um, Peter is saying here, let your passion for holiness be tempered by knowledge, be guided by the knowledge of the word of God. And there's only one way to get that knowledge, and it's through the study of the scriptures. Knowledge, this knowledge is not going to just kind of fall out of the sky into your mind someday. You know, um, God doesn't give us money by letting it fall out of the sky. Uh, uh, we, we all have to work for it. Uh, and God doesn't give us spiritual knowledge uh, out of the sky either. He, uh, he makes us work for it. We have to be diligent to be in the Scriptures to learn the truth so that we can apply that to our lives. And that involves what you're doing this morning, being faithful to come to, the, to, to meet with the people of God and be taught by, by Pastor Todd and others who preach the, the truth uh, to you. But it's more than that. It's also getting into the Word yourself day by day and feeding your own soul with the Scripture so that you can, can grow and know what God requires of you and actually, um, by His grace, live that out. So Peter says, in your knowledge, in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And then he says in verse 6, he gives us a third uh, character quality we need to grow in. He says, in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control, as the word would imply, means controlling self. Uh, our great enemy in the Christian life is self. And we all have, still have sinful desires and even good desires that can become sinful that are that will be impediments to our growth in Christ. One of my favorite all-time authors who went to be with the Lord not long ago, Jerry Bridges, in his book, um, Respectable Sins, uh, spoke of self-control. And he, he said it was the ability to say no when you need to say no. And then he went on to say that self-control is having moderation in the things that God allows and absolute restraint in the things that God forbids. There, there are two categories of sin. There are some things that God just forbids in Scripture. Adultery, lying, stealing, killing, long list. But there are some things that are just taboo for a Christian. But then there, there are also things that God allows, even blesses our life with, that can become sinful if we allow those things to become idols in our hearts, if we allow ourselves to value those things and pursue those things more than we pursue pleasing Christ. So self-control is having moderation in those things that God allows. Money and job and hobbies and uh, relationships, uh, things that God blesses our life with, but if we allow them to become more important to us than Christ, they become sinful because they become idols that we're worshiping more than God. Self-control allows us to exercise moderation in those things and to exercise absolute restraint in, um, in the things that God forbids. Uh, Bridges goes on to give an illustration. It says, uh, self-control is having moderation in watching TV but absolute restraint in viewing internet porn. The one, it's okay as long as you regulate it. The other, don't go there at all. Self-control will enable us to do both. And then Peter says, in your self-control, supply perseverance. Uh, perseverance is the word hupomone in the Greek, and it means to abide under. It's often used in relation to trials that come in that God brings into our life. And we're to abide under those trials until God does the work He wants to do through those trials and brings us back on top. It may be translated endurance in some of your translations. Uh, and, and here it speaks of, of enduring and persevering in the Christian walk. Perseverance here is basically self-control over the long haul. As you choose to 
exercise self-control and say no to self and, and yes to Christ moment by moment and day by day, uh, as you do that over the long haul, that's endurance. That's perseverance. And, and that's a life that pleases the Lord. Which leads to the next character quality of godliness. In your perseverance, supply godliness. Godliness is the end result of perseverance. And it, but it, as you persevere in obedience to Christ, you become more and more godly. And the word for godliness here is a word that, first of all, refers to our attitudes. Uh, an attitude of reverence and, and worship to the Lord. But that attitude will always be expressed by godly actions. Uh, a, godly, uh, a person who's godly on the inside will, will live godly on the outside. Um, I heard one time a, a good statement that stuck with me. It said that godly character is when your involuntary actions are godly. As we live the Christian life, oftentimes, uh, you know, we, we, we struggle with certain sins and we, we have to struggle to say no to them or we have to struggle to do the things that God calls us to and, and it's a battle and it's, it's something like self-control. We're choosing that moment by moment and we're struggling with that. But there comes a point as we go along that in some of those areas, uh, because we've been obedient over the long haul, it just becomes the natural response to turn away from the things we shouldn't look at or to respond in a certain situation in a godly way rather than a, than a sinful way that we, we may have used to been prone to. That's, when, that's godly character. That's what God is calling us to, to, to become mature, so that more and more it's just the natural thing to respond in a godly way. Not that there won't always be areas of sin we struggle with, but that there is a progression in our character. Uh, and that will be evident to those that we, we interact with. So we've seen so far five character qualities that uh, God wants us to grow in uh, as Christians. Uh, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. And then he mentions in verse 7 um, a, a very wonderful one that, uh, that I've experienced this weekend as I've been with you here uh, uh, at your church, and that is brotherly kindness. Uh, this is the word Philadelphian in the Greek. It, it, it's the word that the city of Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. And it basically it means brotherly love. It's a, it's, a, it's a family term. And it refers to the, the love that God implants in the hearts of believers for one another and that expresses itself in kindness and ministry to one another. Now, Scripture teaches that this is a mark of a true believer, uh, all believers have this love for one another because if we have Christ in us, He is going to, to, to work that. Uh, over in, uh, in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 20, it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So here John says that love for other believers is, is an evidence of salvation. Uh, because you're family, you're just going to naturally love other believers. And in fact, Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that love will express itself in kindness to one another. Galatians 6, 10 says, As you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So as Christians, we want to be kind to all, but we'll have a, a special desire to, to, to minister to family. But even though God has, does that work in us as Christians, it's not always easy because sometimes the demands of love are pretty costly when we have to forgive brothers or sisters who have hurt us and sinned against us, when we have to bear the, the burdens of another brother who's hurting and in, in great need. Um, 
J. Vernon McGee, uh, who used to be uh, still on the radio here, I heard him say something once uh, years ago. He said, uh, to live above with the saints in love, oh, that would be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, that's a different story. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that's often the case. I mean, uh, we rub each other the wrong way, and we, we, we do things that, that hurt each other, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. And, uh, and so this brotherly kindness means covering that and, and loving the brethren in spite of the fact that sometimes it's, it's difficult to do. Paul said over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 9, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So he says, that's just part of being a Christian. You don't really need me to write to you about having love. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But then he says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. No matter how much we love the brethren, we can always do a better job of it. And that leads back in our text to the final character quality that God requires of us. Not only brotherly kindness or brotherly love, but he says, love. And this is the word agape in the Greek, which speaks of the love of choice. Uh, not just the warm affection that we have toward other brothers and sisters in Christ, but choosing to love everybody. Not just believers, but the lost. Not just those who are friends, but those who have made themselves our enemies. Not just those who, who bless us and treat us wonderfully, but, but those who, who treat us badly. And this is really the apex of the Christian life. Jesus said the two greatest commandments was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says if you do those two things, you'll be keeping all the law and the commandments. So if we, if we get here where our lives are characterized by this godly agape love, we'll have gone a long way in the Christian life. And really we can measure our Christian life by that. So we've looked this morning, first of all, at the, the graces that God has granted us to enable us to live the life that He's called us to. And then we've seen these areas that He requires us to grow in by taking what He has granted us and then trusting Him to enable us to live it out. But I'm glad that Peter doesn't end here because he ends with three wonderful blessings that God bestows upon us if we'll do this. The first one of those is given to us in, in verse 8, and that is God will bestow upon us abounding fruitfulness. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These qualities refers to these qualities of Christian character that Peter has just been mentioning. He said, if these are yours, if they're truly in you, and they will be to some degree if you're a believer, but he says, if they are yours and are increasing, if you're growing in these areas, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the word that's translated fruitful here is an interesting word. It's a word that meant to be idle. And it referred to someone who was, who was today we call it the person that deadbeat, someone who who had the ability and the opportunity to work, but refused to do so. And here he says, if, you, if you're growing in these things, you won't be idle. You won't be unemployed in the Christian life. But even more than that, he says, you also will not be unfruitful. And the word for unfruitful here referred to a tree that failed to produce a crop, failed to produce fruit even in the most, under the most favorable conditions. God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness, but we can fail to produce much fruit in our life if we are not actively seeking to grow in these areas. But Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you won't be unemployed and you won't be unproductive. The flip side of that is you will be active in the Christian life and you will be productive and fruitful. Jesus said in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And notice how he says we will be fruitful and productive. 
He says, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's that word for experiential knowledge again, relationship with Christ. And I think that seems a bit uh, surprising at first because you would expect him to say you'll neither be idle or unfruitful in your service for Christ or in your works for Christ or in your soul winning. But he says you won't be unfruitful or unproductive in your true knowledge of Christ. And what that says to us, I believe, is that the basic goal of the Christian life is to know Christ better. As you seek to grow in these character qualities, the, 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 the best thing about that is you'll become more and more uh, intimate in your relationship with Christ. And you'll grow in your relationship with Him, which will in turn produce fruitful service and fruitful ministry uh, in your life. So the first blessing that Peter says will be bestowed upon us if we grow in these areas is abounding fruitfulness. And he says the opposite of that in verse 9 is, He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He says the person who doesn't have these qualities is blind. They can't see spiritually. They're spiritually nearsighted. They, they, they can only see what's around them. And I, I believe there's two applications to this. Um, the primary application here, I believe he's, he's speaking about the false teachers that he's going to read, uh, re, uh, write about later in the book uh, who, who do not grow in these qualities because they don't know Christ at all. And a person who totally lacks these qualities, uh, that person should examine himself or herself because it's evidence that you, you, you don't have spiritual life. But it's also true that if a Christian is deficient in these areas... Uh, we can forget that we were purged from our old sin. In other words, uh, we can lose our assurance of salvation because uh, of not growing in these areas. And that leads to the second thing that Peter says uh, God will bestow upon us if we grow in these areas. Not only abounding fruitfulness, but absolute assurance. In verse 10 he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Calling and choosing in this verse refers to God's work of saving us. His choosing us in eternity past, sovereignly, to be one of his people, and his effectually calling us to Christ, doing that work in our heart that brings us to saving faith. Granting that saving faith to us. Granting us repentance, which the Bible also says is a gift of God. But Peter says here, we need to be diligent about making certain that that has happened in our lives. And how do you do that? How do you make certain that you're really saved? Well, one way we do that, and the basic way we do that, is just knowing that we've we're trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That we've turned from our sin. That we're, we're not trusting in our good works. We're not trusting in our church membership or anything else that we could do. We're trusting in Christ and His work on the cross alone for salvation. But a second way that we come to assurance according to the New Testament, and the New Testament speaks much about this, is through Christian growth. Through seeing God at work in our life conforming us to the image of Christ. And in fact, that's what Peter is talking about here because he uses the same phrase in verse 10 that he used up in verse 5. Uh, there he said, be diligent. In verse 5, he said, be diligent to grow in these character qualities. In verse 10, he says, be diligent to make certain about your calling and your election. And there's a connection there. The way to become certain about salvation is to grow as a Christian in these areas. For a long time in my Christian life, I struggled with the, the issue of assurance uh, uh, to the point of being completely debilitated for a long period of time uh, where I was just wrestling with this issue of, of am I saved? And I, I, was so, I was so introspective on that issue that, that I was failing to really do anything else in the Christian life except try to work that out. And one day, a, a good friend of mine who, who went to be with the Lord year before last at 45 uh, told me, uh, you need to stop worrying about this so much and just, just start obeying God. And you know what? 
as I started just stepping out and obeying God, assurance came. Because that's one of the ways that God brings assurance. And Peter says here, if you want to be assured of your salvation, if you want to make certain about God's calling and choosing you, you'll never be sure if you're not growing. Because you won't be able to discern whether God's working in your life or not. But if you will be diligent to grow in these qualities of Christian character, God in His grace will bring assurance through that. That's one of the biblical ways that He assures us of our salvation. And then there's one final blessing that He bestows upon us if we grow in these areas. Not only abounding fruitfulness and assurance of salvation, that takes place in our life right now, but in verse 11 He gives us one for the future. He says, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. The third thing he bestows upon us is abundant entrance. Abundant entrance into his kingdom. This speaks of the time that we go to meet the Lord. As Christians, we will one day meet the Lord and spend eternity with him. But Scripture teaches us that not all believers, even though we all will have the same eternal life and salvation, uh, not all believers will have the same eternal reward or the same entrance into the kingdom. Look with me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will itself will test the quality of each one's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Here, Paul says that Christ is the foundation of our Christian life, and he pictures the Christian life here as a building. And he says on that foundation of Christ, we can, we're building our spiritual lives. And we can build with different kinds of material. We can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, which are valuable materials that will not be destroyed in a fire. Or we can build with wood, hay, and straw, which, as you know, quickly go up in, in a fire. And he says, when we, when we stand before God, there will be some Christians who will be rewarded because they've lived a life that's brought much glory uh, to the Lord. And they will receive reward for the life that God has enabled them to live. And what a grace that is. God enables us to live uh, the life He's called us to and then rewards us for it. But there are some, it says, whose work will be burned up and they'll suffer loss. But He makes it clear here it's not the loss of salvation. He says, yet He Himself will be saved... Yet so as through fire, that the loss will be of eternal rewards. And that must be some kind of capacity to glorify God even more eternally. But we could say that person will be saved but by the skin of his teeth, as we would say. But Peter says, if we will grow in these character qualities that we've been looking at this morning, that will not be our, that will not be our experience in eternity. Instead, we will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God supplied to us. There's a play on words here. The word supplied here is the same as, he, as uh, Peter used up in verses 5 through 7 to speak of us supplying these different things in our, to our faith. If we supply these character qualities in our Christian lives by God's grace, He will supply an abundant entrance to us into His eternal kingdom. I think it can all be summed up into the words of Christ in Matthew 25 that was in one of the songs today, that we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Those words will repay abundantly every, everything we've ever endured in the Christian life. 
well done, good and faithful servant. So this morning we've looked at the Christian life and what God has granted us to enable us to live it. We've looked at the things that He requires of us in order to grow and become the people that He's called us to be. And we've seen three wonderful benefits that He'll bestow upon us if we do. Abounding fruitfulness, absolute assurance, and abundant entrance into His kingdom. I know if you're a believer here this morning, you want those things. How are you doing in the areas of growth that we've looked at? Are you taking the things that God has granted you in Christ, those spiritual resources, and putting them into practice to grow in these areas? Do you have absolute assurance of your salvation? Are you being fruitful in your walk with Christ? Will you one day hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant? Well, the Lord has told us this morning how to, how to have those. And I pray that each one will, will put those into practice. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture this morning. And Lord, I thank you for this congregation. And I pray for all of us that you would give us grace to understand the resources that you've granted us in Christ. And that you would give us grace to be diligent to put those things into practice. Lord, work in our lives that we might experience the blessings that this passage speaks of. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.